Eliana, we're doing it again. We're talking about psychedelic drugs again. We really like our psychedelic drugs. So it seems. <laughs> Do you remember anything from our previous episode? I remember some things. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to being re-educated. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Giuliano. And I'm your co-host, Eleana. And today we're talking about psychedelic drugs. Again, but in a different way. And with a new researcher. Our guest today, in fact, is Lauri Elsila, doctoral researcher from the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Helsinki. But don't worry, this is not like a Marvel movie where if you haven't seen the previous movies, you don't understand the next one. No, we will talk about it as if it was the very first time. But yes, do go and listen to the previous episode. We'll put the link in the description. Anyway, so Lauri, thank you for being here. How are you today? Thanks for inviting. I'm happy to be here and uh, the upcoming spring makes me happy as well. That's right. It's coming. It's almost come. It's almost here. Sorry, I'm interrupting, but maybe you missed it. It did snow a little bit today. That's, that's Finland a Finnish spring. That's yeah. Finland that, that, for you guys. Yeah, that's, that's spring in Finland. Exactly. So, Lauri, of course, uh, it's quite easy to guess what you work on, given that probably whoever's listening has read the title of the episode. But just let's go through it anyway. What, what do you work on? I am studying uh, pharmacological effects or more specifically behavioral effects of psychedelic drugs. And in a big picture, I think I might be interested in understanding how psychedelics or in which ways psychedelics could uh, work in treating addictions. How psychedelics could work in treating addiction. I'm already salivating. However, let's go step by step. Uh, as I said, let's discuss this as if it was the first time. So would you mind telling us what is a psychedelic drug? I think that most people have some uh, pop culture driven stereotypical image of psychedelic effects with pastel colors and kaleidoscopic movements. And that is part of the truth. Psychedelics are a group of chemical compounds that have uh, very powerful mind-altering properties and they change how people see and feel themselves and their surroundings. So they change uh, people's vision, including these colors and different movements. They also change how people perceive the time around them as well as change their emotions and uh, how they feel about themselves. As an example of these drugs, uh, LSD is probably the most known example, uh, but uh, also psilocybin, from, known from uh, magic mushrooms, is one of the most used and known ones. And then there is also, for example, dimethyltryptamine or DMT and mescaline that people might have heard of. So when did we start looking at them from a clinical point of view? When did these drugs stop being just like a fancy recreational things for... Uh, hippies and started to become something serious that scientists started to be interested in? It's probably very difficult to pinpoint any one moment in history. Uh, I think the emergence of uh, psychedelic drugs in Western culture coincided with plenty of rather uh, radical new movements in psychiatry, especially in the United States. And these different movements probably walked in hand in hand in generating this interest. 
if we then take one uh, subfield of uh, interests uh, in psychiatry, mainly addiction, uh, there is this story of uh, Abram Hoffer and Humphrey Osmond, who were psychiatrists in Canada. And they had been studying LSD and mescaline in early 1950s. What they had noticed with mescaline and LSD is that people have very profound changes in how they see themselves and especially their life uh, during the effects of psychedelics themselves, but uh, also for a quite long time after, after the experience themselves. And they look their life in a very, very different way. At the same time, they had been treating people with uh, alcohol use disorder, and especially uh, people and patients uh, that underwent something called delirium tremens. Delirium tremens is a hallucination-bound uh, state of confusion uh, caused by alcohol withdrawal. And what they also noticed is that many of these patients also describe these uh, delirium tremens moments as very profound uh, moments of looking at their own life and the addiction and trying to reconstruct what they kept and held important. And the idea that occurred to them was that maybe LSD could be used basically as a control person of this delirium tremens. And with that idea, they went forward and tried some treatments and trials and uh, the results that they came out with were rather interesting. So delirium tremens, it's something that some patients affected by alcohol addiction would experience while they were using the alcohol or during the withdrawal symptoms. I think during, I, during the withdrawal symptoms. During the withdrawal symptoms. And this had a role in them not going back in relapse or yes, did that, exactly yeah. so. Okay. So the researchers thought that maybe psychedelic drugs can induce in a controlled way this specific experience helping the alcoholic addiction patients to stop getting into withdrawal, uh, sorry, um, stop getting into relapse. So basically treating their addiction. Did I understand exactly correctly? So. Yes. Okay. Now I have to come in and ask a very ignorant, I will say, question, because in my mind, psychedelics and drugs like LSD can be very addictive themselves. So the concept is that something that is addictive could be potentially used to treat an addiction to, to something else? Or am, am I wrong? I would consider that if used correctly, even drugs that could be addictive could be used in treating addictions. But it is also important to note that uh, LSD and other, other psychedelics are not considered to be addictive at all. They are not known to cause physiological dependence. Some people use them every now and then and rather often, but uh, psychedelics are also known to be such compounds that you actually cannot even take them very often because the effects actually uh, go away because of uh, increased tolerance. I think it's very common to have this um, kind of generalized ideas of all drug of abuse as one big lump of things that do always the same thing. They make you addicted and they'll kill you at the end. Whereas, you know, if you look at it from the pharmacological point of view, these are all very, very different compounds with different activity profiles, different degrees of addiction. That's actually the usual example of how, how things are way more complex than they usually are, that they usually appear to be. So you mentioned that these compounds are actually, they sound to me quite safe. Are they, how safe are they? So yes, they are considered to be 
very safe, uh, especially considering the harm for your body. Uh, there really is none. So they are not known to be toxic. People have taken very big doses, usually by accident, and they uh, usually have had no no meaningful problems uh, in in long term. Of course, when we are talking about uh, substances like psychedelics that have tremendous effects uh, on one's psyche and mind, and also affects how you feel your environment and the time, uh, they make you, to at least some extent, uh, more prone to accidents under the effects. And that there are known to be some, uh, at least, transient psychological effects of uh, anxiety and agitation, for example. But they are usually easy to treat if they uh, appear and are uh, not long-lasting. So for many, at least, uh, psychedelics are considered very safe drugs. Okay, so now we discussed that the psychedelic uh, drugs, they are not addictive and they can be safe. Um, and uh, there is a potential of them being used to treat addiction. There were some early research or early observations in clinical research um, that had noted that down. Uh, but how much uh, or how far has the research come on that topic? So as I mentioned, they started the first clinical trials already in 1950s and uh, carried along as long as they basically could with, before psychedelics were made illegal. And the findings uh, from the earlier trials were rather interesting and promising, at least that's what they uh, themselves thought at the time. They saw that one or two doses of psychedelic, uh, usually LSD, combined with some kind of a motivational therapy or psychotherapy could actually decrease um, these addictive behaviors, usually in uh, people with alcohol use disorder, very drastically, very quickly, and uh, effects might have lasted very, very long, so even up to six months. Of course, this is something that has now resurfaced as an interesting uh, topic again, and there are more modern clinical trials that have been run both uh, in patients with alcohol use disorder, as well as with uh, tobacco cessation. And uh, these effects have been replicated. So again, with only few doses of psilocybin this time, paired with some kind of motivational uh, motivation enhancement therapy, has le led to effects of dropping alcohol or smoking tobacco totally even. And these uh, cases of abstinence have uh, lasted as long as one year from that therapy session. And how solid are these evidences? Are these like the answers and the results of these clinical trials solid, trustworthy? What's your opinion as a researcher when you read the results of these studies? I think the findings are extremely fascinating. And if these hold true for the future, I think psychedelics might be a very, very new powerful tool uh, in psychiatric care. However, the studies that I described with uh, tobacco cessation and uh, alcohol, the sizes of the trials are so small that it's very, very difficult to draw any generalizable results from there. This is also true in the field of psychedelic therapy uh, research in general. So even with uh, uh, other indications like depression, for example, the trials have been so small that I wouldn't still be relying on those to do any evidence-based medical decisions. So you, you're suggesting to be cautious when, when interpreting these promising results. But So you're, you're pointing out that these are promising results, but nevertheless, just preliminary results. Absolutely. As far as I understand. Yeah. So where does your research 
fits in this frame of potential, I mean, in this frame of knowledge about um, psychedelic properties in treating addiction? That is a good question. Uh, I am starting from the idea that psychedelics actually work as a therapy. And what I am doing is basically trying to find on behavior or on psychological level, what would be the mechanisms through which these therapeutic effects work through. If I understood correctly, you're trying to understand what are the behavioral components of the effects of psychedelic drugs in a potential use for treatment in addiction. Did I understand correctly? Yes, that is true. So uh, I am approaching this from uh, with the idea of deconstructing and reconstructing. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, I'm taking addiction, uh, trying to deconstruct its different behavioral parts mm-hmm. uh, into single uh, behaviors and then uh, see how psychedelics might affect those behaviors and then hopefully try to reconstruct what we know as know as a human addiction back into one piece again. So it's like if we were to say that human addiction as a complex behavior is composed of small micro behaviors, allow me to invent this term, for example, goal-directed behavior, reward-seeking behavior, risk-taking behavior. And so, you know, I try to understand how psychedelics affect these specific single components. Is that what you're doing? Exactly. Oh, awesome. And how are you doing that? I am a preclinical scientist, meaning that I don't study humans, but I use cells and tissues and animal models in my research. And uh, at least in my personal opinion, it is very, very hard, if not impossible, to model uh, full-fledged human addiction in animal models. Uh, But these uh, small single behaviors can easily be seen in other animal species than in humans, for example, in mice and rats. And uh, we have then utilized uh, different behavior testing methods to try to pinpoint these uh, behaviors that you mentioned, for example, goal-directed behavior or impulsivity. And how do you model this behavior in, in, in animals? Do you, is there a specific, I don't know, mouse version of drug addiction test? How, how does it work exactly? There's, there is probably plenty you can do. Uh, one way that we decided to go forward was uh, to use a test called Iowa Gambling Task. Uh, Iowa it, Gambling Task. Okay. Iowa Gambling Task. Uh, it, is, uh, it was originally invented as a psychological test uh, for humans trying to mimic everyday decision-making in a laboratory setting. And in this uh, human version of the test, uh, to simplify it a little, uh, participant chooses cards from four different decks. Each deck uh, gives them a certain amount of money. And they have been given this task to maximize their personal pile of money through these decisions. Uh, What they at this point don't yet know is that every deck also has an inbuilt penalty. So at certain probability, also each deck takes some money away from them. And this is something that they need to learn throughout uh, the test. And then learning these probabilities and the amount of money they get from each deck to try to then uh, optimize and maximize their amount of money that they get. And now how is that translated, like this Iowa gambling test, to the experiments you, you conduct? Basically, we can do this almost identically in mice. Of course, we cannot say to mice what to do, but they will learn it just through trial and error. In the mouse version of the Iowa gambling task, they can either 
press levers or then in our case push uh, certain little panels in a touch screen and, and again uh, each uh, panel gives them a different amount of reward in the case of mice nice tasty sugar uh, and again what they don't initially know is that all, all the panels uh, also have this penalty which is a timeout period during which they cannot pursue a further sugar and even though they are not told to maximize the uh, amount of sugar they are seeking they do it quite naturally on their own so the mice essentially learn that they press a button, they get a sugar from its different patterns, they will get a different amount of sugar. But then some patterns will say after a few button presses, then no sugar comes out. And do the mice have to learn that? Yes, or do they? Have they? To learn. Yeah. Yes, they have to learn this and they actually learn it quite nicely. So it takes some time, but they will uh, learn to optimize their decisions to actually maximize the number of sugar delivers that they can get. And is it now when you study like these addiction issues and whether uh, LSD can or psychedelics can help with addiction, is it now that the mice are addicted to the sugar? And then you want to help them resolve that? Or is it something else that happens? I'm asking because I was thinking maybe I'm a mice because I'm addicted to sugar myself. Maybe, maybe that can help me. No, but I, I, I don't think that's a good question. I don't think that they get to addicted to a sugar in this uh, test paradigm. But uh, we are testing something more general. So we are not even trying to mimic addiction uh, in this test that we are driving here. Uh, but we try to just see in general goal-directed behaviors, maybe risk-taking, or we can also measure how quickly they respond to these panels and that might be used as a, a measure for impulsive behaviors. So we can then just take these single behaviors and see how, if we give the mice LSD, how these are changed. But it is a good question in my opinion, because it is true that we are not trying to model addiction, although addiction is the umbrella thing that under which my own research interests are currently. As far as I understand, you are modeling a small behavioral component, which we suppose is part of what we call in humans addictive behavior. And in this case, I presume it would be something like um, goal-directed behavior. So the mouse learns to press a button and receive sugar, and that's a goal-directed behavior. The mouse presses the button because it wants sugar, despite the fact that the mouse eventually learns that if it, kept, if it keeps pressing the button, there will be a timeout and the sugar won't come anymore. And as far as I understand, you then administer LSD to see if that drug influences or, or has any effect on this specific behavior. Did I understand correctly? Yeah. Yes. And then I, I guess eventually if the result, let's say, let's say that the result is yes, LSD uh, reduces this goal-directed behavior, then I guess the speculation would be that in humans, the effect of LSD in addiction goes through this specific behavioral component. Is that the, the, the idea of the speculation? Exactly. So at the speculation would then be that at least part of the therapeutic action goes through this certain behavior, but it cannot discount the other behaviors that are still involved in addiction. Of course, of course. And well, I guess now we build a hype already. So you gave the LSD to the mice who learned to have this behavior. You want to tell us what was the result? Quite surprisingly, LSD did actually nothing. Nothing? 
nothing. So we gave them uh, doses that are considered to be, say, hallucination inducing in mice, uh, as far as we know. And the mice kept uh, acting in this test session just as they had been doing before. And what's your, as a researcher, what's your conclusion after seeing these results? Basically, we deduced that at least with these doses, uh, LSD did not affect goal-directed behavior or risk-taking behavior or uh, actually even impulsive behaviors in mice, at least in mice that are healthy and normal. But as I understand, the, the research will not stop there. The fact that uh, there was no uh, correlation uh, for this kind of uh, study or like um, focus doesn't mean that it's uh, the end of the possibility of the uh, psychedelics uh, helping uh, with other issues, I guess. That is true. I totally agree. So uh, with my approach, I think the next point would then be uh, try to find another behavior to test this on. And of course, since we are testing these substances in mice, uh, which are not humans that don't have human addiction, uh, or even healthy human beings in that. Um, so in an optimal scenario, I think we would want to see someone doing Iowa gambling tasks also in humans, especially since we have a model that can be done both in uh, animal uh, rodents and in humans. Uh, unfortunately, at least currently, I know no uh, study utilizing this exact study method, uh, but there has been one uh, study published where they tried another kind of a gambling task called Cambridge gambling task in healthy volunteers. And when they gave these uh, participants LSD and uh, asked them to try this Cambridge gambling task, the results were rather similar, that these subjects also didn't have any changes in risk uh, decision-making, which is, of course, quite nice that the results are similar than the ones that we have found. I think that the question I'm going to ask is what everyone's thinking at the moment. How does a mouse on LSD look like? It looks almost identical to one that is not under LSD. Okay. So there is this one known behavior called head twitch response that is... Uh, head twitch response. Okay. Head twitch response. And it okay. actually tells mostly of all that is about this behavior. So when administered uh, psychedelics, mice start twitching their heads quickly from side to side. So shaking their heads on a very quick motion that happens for uh, some time and then it fades away. And that's basically the only clear thing that you might see in a mouse or a rat that has been given psychedelic. That is so disappointing. I mean, I don't even know what I was expecting or imagining. I mean, of course, like the mouse wouldn't be able to say, oh, I see dragons, but okay, head twitching. Could it be because as a humans, we are known that as a species, we are expressing emotions and thoughts much more than other species. So could it be that it's uh, the less emotions an animal is presenting or showing, the more difficult it is to um, recognize whether they are high or not? It could totally be one part of it. I mean, there are some... Uh very new methods of trying to see how mice and rats actually feel from their facial expressions. So it would be very interesting to see if these uh, expressions change under psychedelics. Also, if we consider that uh, humans 
have changes in how they feel and see and so on. Uh, this could also be true for mice, for which, for example, the information coming through the whiskers is very, very strong and powerful. Uh, it might be also related to somehow to that. Uh, this is totally speculative, of course, but we don't exactly know how mice feel, what they feel around themselves. So these uh, changes in how we perceive our surroundings might be uh, rather similar just in relation to how we are actually as animals. Your evidences suggest that we can at least possibly rule out that specific behavior from the potential psychedelic effect on addictive behavior. I will be a scientist here and say that mm -hmm. it was only a one experiment. Fair enough. And again, say, as said, uh, in healthy mice. Um, so I wouldn't be still willing to mm. rule out it fully as a potential mechanism, but uh, at least the current evidence would show mm -hmm. that towards thinking that it might not be through that. Why do you think it's important to understand this? Why do you think it's, it, it's important to understand in which behavioral component uh, psychedelics work? I think that has uh, probably many answers. First of all, I think even though there are theories on how psychedelics work and which uh, things might be the most relevant for the therapeutic effects, uh, we still know quite a little about them in general and especially their effects. And uh, preclinical methods in general, so cells, animal models and others, uh, enable us to use such methods that can dig rather deep for example, into the molecular level of the effects of drugs. And understanding these mechanisms would maybe help us understand psychiatric disorders better, and at least for some, maybe design better treatments in the future. There are hopes in the fields of psychedelic science to basically make better psychedelics, uh, whatever that means for anyone. But if the therapeutic effects that we have seen are true, I think there is very much hope uh, in actually trying these drugs and maybe say better drugs as a future treatment. Of course, for me personally, it's also a very, very interesting field uh, to see because I am interested in understanding what kind of a mind might say mouse or rat have. And I think psychedelics could actually give a quite nice door to that kind of a, uh, or that field of an investigation. Can I say that last one is my favorite one? I mean, that sounds really, I mean, what it's, it's a good reason to try to want to improve the treatment and say, okay, we're studying psychedelics because they might reveal themselves as excellent treatments, better, better than the ones we have now and studying psychedelics and understanding how to build new treatment. Brilliant. But what you said at the end, like using them as a, as a door to also studying how a mouse thinks and feels, that's definitely hands down my favorite one. I totally agree. Well, Audi, thank you so much for your experience and your knowledge about this topic. We're going to do what we did for the previous episode. So now, for the next 60 seconds, Eliana and I will shut up. We will actually switch off my, our microphones. The stage is yours, and you're free to say whatever you want, whatever you want the audience to know as a final take a message about this topic. So three, two, one... I think I should ask everyone listening to be wary of what they hear and read about psychedelics, especially if something very spectacular is being promised. Now, the effects we have seen in patients with depression and substance use disorders, for, for example, uh, with large, long-lasting decreases in symptoms, uh, they are highly interesting. But as clinical evidence goes, we still have things to do. 
especially the small size of these studies leaves a lot to desire. So bigger trials are being conducted all the time, which is very, very good. But as the evidence now stands, I don't personally think that it warrants the level of hype we are seeing at the same time. Thank you so much. So the take home message is basically these things might be good, might have the properties that they claim, but we're still not sure. So be cautious. Is that absolutely awesome? Thank you so much. Thank you. Leanna, what do you think? Are you, are you, what do you think now of psychedelics? Um, I think that I still don't know enough about them and I'm looking forward to the results that will come through in the future. And I will take uh, home with me uh, Laurie's message and uh, I will read everything about psychedelics with a pinch of salt because yeah. in the news, uh, but also in the society, there is a lot of taboo, but also a lot of misinformation at the same time. And uh, it's important to not get too excited, but also to not get too disappointed about it. Exactly. Don't expect too much when you think of a mouse on LSD. Otherwise, <laughs> you get disappointed like myself. But You yeah. get like Juliana, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, also, I think this is the right moment to specify that we are not endorsing nor encouraging any use of any treatment or a drug. Just, you know, do whatever your doctor tells you to do. Uh, we've been talking about research and research only. So let the researchers do their job. But apart from that, being, you know, be smart and just don't do anything that the, your doctor doesn't tell you to do. Anyway, Laudi, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I don't know if you know that at the end of our episodes, we usually have a science fun fact just to lighten the mood. Just um, a fun fact that may be or maybe not related to the topic. Eliana, what's your fun fact today? Well, Giuliano, I wanted not to disappoint, but also not to be very far from the topic we were discussing. You have a and story about a mouse on LSD? No, unfortunately, I don't. Okay. But I have a story about love of alcohol. And oh, why very related. Becoming addicted to it. Okay. So the, there was a study, uh, let me read the, the journal right so I don't make any mistake. So there was a study published uh, on the Journal of Royal Society for Open Science. And uh, according to this paper, uh, we are not the only primates that have a tendency to like alcohol. Uh-huh. Apparently, there has been observations in the tropical areas of uh, monkeys and more precisely um, spider monkeys, uh, which they will favor uh, fruits that have a bit of alcohol content in them. Um, so basically rottening foods, uh, fruits, yes, fruits that are and, basically uh, fermenting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they had observed that monkeys would uh, smell and discard fruits and then consume some others. And they noticed that they were discarding the fruits that didn't have an alcohol content in they them. They were discarding the one that did not have the alcohol in them. So they yes. were actively choosing the ones with booze. Of course, the, we cannot exclude that that was a coincidence, but according to the I mean, observation of the data statistics. collected, they yeah. were selecting the ones that had a small alcohol content. And the conclusion of the study is that humans may not be the only primates uh, who love alcohol and probably uh, the root of uh, this love uh, comes from our common ancestors. Laurie, what do you make of this information now? 
I mean, I didn't know this, but at the same time, I'm not fully surprised either. Huh. Fun fact for sure, and makes mind go wild, you know, with future research questions. I remember reading very recently, it was such a coincidence. I, think, I don't remember if I was reading or I watched a video documentary about it, but there are some possible, some researchers have made speculation on what would be the evolutionary advantage of having like, alcohol addiction. I mean, trying to look for evolutionary advantage for every feature, I know it's a slippery slope, but some researchers try to speculate why this tendency to like alcohol didn't just part, like, wasn't selected away from evolution. And it turns out that if you think about it, alcohol is produced in rotting fruits. And another thing that, another feature of rotting fruits is because all the water evaporates, the concentration of sugar is really high. So as a primates or any, or whichever it is, the first animal that developed um, a tendency to like alcohol, they would have a reason to prefer rotting fruits because they would have a higher caloric intake. So therefore so, more energy for our yes, bodies to function. Exactly. So, but that's just, of course, evolutionary speculation as most of the times. But wow, okay. Honestly, yeah. I don't even know what a spider monkey is. Uh, me neither, but there were the photos uh, on the internet that uh, gave me an idea. Um, the, is it, is it a I monkey was... with eight legs? I assume not. No. Okay. There was so it wasn't a mutant monkey, wasn't a, a strange looking monkey. Okay. Um, but it, it was a, a fellow a primate. And uh, I will have to uh, say that the study was done by Campbell et al. And it was published mm -hmm. in 2002, this March, more precisely. So it's fresh from the oven. Wait, 2022. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It took me 10 years back in time. 20 years back in time. I've lost the sense have of Have you time. been eating in rotten in fruits lately, Elian? <laughs> no, I promise I had not. But I am high in sugars because I consumed... 200 grams of chocolate. Okay. Don't shame okay. me. So that's it. Uh, we are now at the end of the episode. So thank you very much, Lauri, for sharing your views and experience and knowledge in the field. Thank you, Leanna, for your lovely hosting and your very, like, surprisingly, how, what adjective would I use? Uh, not disappointing. Not disappointing fun fact. And of course, thank you to all our listeners. This was the Science Basement Podcast. See you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. The science basement.